Good morning. Welcome to Brown Bag Green Book. It's so great to see everyone. I am Elnora Williams, president of the Friends of the Library. I would like for you to take note of Emily Ellis in the back. She sets up all of these events, and we never applaud Emily. And I would like for you to give a big round of applause because she does a lot. Okay. And at this time, our speaker today is Dr. Marcy Sousa. She's assistant professor of veterinary medicine at UT. She will talk about forbidden creatures inside the world of animal smuggling and exotic pets by Peter Lawfer. Well, thanks for having me. This is a little bit different than most crowds that I talk to. I was approached with this back in the spring, and I thought, well, this could be kind of an interesting thing. It's something that I'm not used to lecturing to people that are not veterinary students or not graduate students or fellow veterinarians. And so I thought it would be interesting, and it's always kind of nice to know what people in the general public are saying about what you do for a living. Just by a show of hands, who here has ever owned an exotic pet or something that's not a dog or a cat or a um, horse might be kind of commonplace? So put your hand up, Phil. <laughs> I've been to your house. I know what. <laughs> so there's a good number. So of, of those people that have owned kind of an unusual pet, how many would do it again? So still some of you. Not everyone, though. And so that's something to just keep in mind as we start talking about this book. You know, of the people, there's probably about a dozen hands of people that have owned kind of weird animals. Some of the things that I wanted to talk about were specifically really how exotic animals come into play in a couple of different ways. One is, what about the human-animal bond? So this is something that we talk about a lot at the vet school, especially when we talk about dogs and cats. And people accept dogs and cats as normal pets. Those are okay for the most part. Um, but what about a snake? What about a bird? What about a tortoise? Can you really have a human-animal bond with those animals? Is there something there? Uh, the next thing is maybe ecological effects. What, what role in the environment, and this is obviously something that plays into the topic here, what role in the environment does taking these animals out of the wild or letting them loose in the wild, as was discussed in this book, have a role in the environment? And then the last thing, which is kind of near and dear to my heart, is zoonoses. And that's basically a fancy word, or what diseases can you guys get from owning animals? So any sort of disease that a person can get from an animal, what role do these kind of pets play in that? And how does that compare to dogs and cats? Is it really worse? Is it better? We don't know necessarily. But, so just as a quick overview, to start with, um, Forbidden Creatures. So Peter Lawfer is the author, and he is a Ph.D. His prior book was talking about butterflies and the world of um, basically the trade in butterflies. And so the trade goes um, to zoos. So they'll, a lot of times, if you've ever been to the Knoxville Zoo, there is actually a butterfly exhibit. Um, but certainly all over the world, people will collect these as their own collections. Sometimes they'll be displayed in zoos and aquariums, things like that. And so that was actually his prior book. And during this, he kind of saw this underground market for animals. And he started seeing all of these animals that were routinely being sold, some legally, some not legally. And so what he was exploring this, one of his big questions was, who wants to own a chimp? Who wants to own a tiger? Who owns these animals? Like, why would you want to own one of those? It just seems like a strange thing. His discussion is mostly focused on animals that most of us would think is a bad idea to own. Um, and I won't ask you to raise your hands who thinks it's a good idea to own a chimp, because then we'll just be like, what, are you crazy? But 
So the animals that he mostly focuses on in this book are big cats, mostly tigers, chimpanzees, and very, very, very large snakes, such as the Burmese python, which can get to be 20, 30 feet long. Phil is confirming that, yes. And so I thought I'd give you a little bit of background about, in Tennessee, the way that exotic animals work. Most of them are regulated through the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. And there is a class of animals. They're called Class One animals. And these are animals that are very dangerous is basically the easy way to summarize it. And so big cats and chimps are included in this. Burmese pythons are not, but venomous snakes are. There's a number of other animals, including, I believe, elephants, um, wolves, wolf hybrids, bears. And there's basically the animals that are considered dangerous. If they were to get out, they could potentially kill you. Um, And you have to, in order to own one of these, you have to have a permit that is issued by the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency. And in order to get those permits, as a private person, you've got to get your facilities inspected. You have to take an exam. You essentially have to be at least hopefully a little bit knowledgeable about what you're doing. And so all of our, anyone that is a private owner of an animal like this must go through that. In addition to facilities like the Knoxville Zoo, uh, they have to have permitting from the, the state as well. And in addition to this, if you have people that own animals or institutions such as a university or a zoo, they also have to be regulated by the USDA, so United States Department of Agriculture. And those are for institutions that are going to breed or sell or display animals. And a zoo is your classic example of that. So the Knoxville Zoo gets inspected not only by TWRA, but also by the USDA to make sure that they're following the rules and they're doing things like they should. There are certainly people in Tennessee that have these animals as pets. I contacted actually one of the officers that works for TWRA, and he said that there are currently 10 Class 1 permits issued in Tennessee outside of the major zoos. And of those, two are for sanctuaries. One is Tiger Haven, which some of you have probably heard of. It's located in Roan County. The other is the Elephant Sanctuary. That's located in Middle Tennessee. Two are for universities, and one is for a state park that owns a venomous snake as part of a display for the, the state park. And the other five are private owners. And I believe he said that they're all big cats. I'm pretty sure they are. But basically, these are people that have a large cat as a pet. And so one of the things that Peter Lawford in his book starts to ask is, why do you want one of these? Why would someone want one of these? And it's a pretty good question. And I don't know that I have a, a good answer for it. In addition to these regulations, one other thing that's more local is the Knoxville Animal Control Board instituted ordinances a few years ago that in order to, in addition to these, the class one permitting that you would need for a big cat or a chimp, they also have a big snake regulation. I don't know if that's the actual title of it, but that's what it's nicknamed. And basically, if if you own one of the big snakes, such as a Burmese python, in Knoxville City, you're supposed to apply for a permit to own it. And what that entails is filling out an application. An animal control officer will come out, inspect your your setup to make sure that this animal is not going to get loose and start eating children. And it's a good idea, but unfortunately in the last couple years, I think there's only been one or two permits issued. And that goes back to the question of, well, it's great to have regulations, but if nobody follows them, what is it? Is it actually helping with public safety? Um, So do these regulations work? A couple of examples that he used in the book. One is uh, there was an attack. There was a woman that lived in Connecticut 
that she had a pet chimp. The chimp's name was Travis. And he, he goes into a lot of detail about this relationship that the, she had. And she certainly had a human-animal bond. Um, the chimp slept with her. Uh, they shared a bed. They would drink wine together, which seems strange. But... <laughs> But they did. And so they had this relationship that basically she, the chimp was almost like a partner, but um, albeit an odd relationship, they did have this bond. And then things went wrong, and one of the woman's friends came over just for a visit, and for whatever reason, the chimp went bonkers, for lack of a better term, and completely maimed the woman, the, the owner's friend. And she, I think she was actually on the news somewhat recently because she just had a face restructuring. And so this woman's, her entire life has been changed because most of her face was actually removed by this chimpanzee. And there's been other stories that you've heard about this. There was a man a few years ago, this was not covered in the book, that went to visit a chimp that he used to own and went to visit at the sanctuary and something went awry. Um, and he ended up having severe injuries like losing a hand um, as well as other parts. So he goes into detail on those, and the way that he he describes them are actually, it's very easy to read. So his writing style is very easy. It's easy to follow. It's, you know, you get sucked into a chapter, and you're amazed at what some of these people will do. Um, One of the next examples that he gives, and this is also going to the, the crazy animals that people might own, is the Burmese python in Florida that has actually recently gone to court. Um, a man and his girlfriend owned a Burmese python, and I don't remember the length of it exactly, but it escaped its enclosure and killed their two-year-old daughter. And the question is, is well, what went wrong there? Would, re- would regulations have stopped that? I don't know that it would have because they might not have registered the animal. Um, but perhaps if someone came in and looked at the enclosure and said, hey, this is faulty, maybe that girl wouldn't have been killed. But basically she curled, the snake crawled in bed with it, saw her as a warm source of food, and didn't distinguish her from, you know, another small mammal that might be a potential food source. So regulation, kind of the summary of this is regulation is not necessarily the key, but education really is. My question to you, I would love for some contribution at this point, is what constitutes an exotic pet? And this is something that we wrestle with whenever we talk about exotic pets. And a couple of my colleagues that uh, work at UT with me in the exotic pet service are here. And some of the things that we see are exotic, but some of them are really not. I mean, is a rabbit an exotic pet? Yes? I see heads shaking no. We are the ones that see it. The dog and cat vets don't. And this is actually a good topic that the, the author brings up is should we even own animals? Should we even have pets? Is that even appropriate? Um, But from the same point, he has a dog and a cat that he very much has fondness for. So if he does, and and routinely throughout the book, he actually criticizes people that own exotic pets. And it is, and he's actually, I think he's got two chapters in here devoted to, is it, is ownership of dogs and cats is, and I'm using ownership loosely, is that really, you know, we are simply their caretakers, or what what the bond is there, but is is it even appropriate for us to have a cat or a dog? And I don't I think that's a, a circular argument question that there's really no right answer to because there certainly is value in having pets. There's been um, lots of things that have been shown with the human animal bond and various 
aspects that, yeah, people really, they like having animals around. And are they a pet or are they a companion? Is it semantics when you get to that point? I don't know. But a rabbit, so probably not really that exotic, whether you call it a pet or an animal. Not exotic, but we're the ones that see it. Some dog and cat, that's, we don't want to see it. But other things, so birds, exotic, not exotic. Something else to consider is when you think about ferrets, ferrets have been domesticated for a very long time, but we also see them in the exotic ward. This is something that he brings up. So is exotic the pet raccoon? Well, they're native, but they're kind of exotic as a pet. Usually when you talk about legal things, anything exotic is not native. When you take it in that definition, a domestic cat is exotic. There's no good definition. And so this is kind of a a question that makes you think about things that, well, you know, what really is exotic? And so it goes back to when he mostly addresses the big three that I said. So he talks about chimps, big cats, and giant snakes. I guess one of my biggest problems with this book was that he is very, very narrow in his examination of pet ownership or companionship, whatever we'd like to call it. He doesn't actually explore someone that owns a little budgie or a parakeet or someone that has a pet turtle or a pet corn snake or something that's not quite so dangerous, something that's a lot more benign. And are there, are there benefits to having these animals? And I pulled a couple numbers just for interesting sake. Every couple of years, there's a, I believe it's the American Pet Association. They do a survey of pets in the United States and how many, you know, about how many are there. And the 2010 survey estimated that there are 46.3 million households that own dogs. And in those households, there's about 78.2 million dogs. So each house probably has one to two dogs. And if you look at the same number for a couple of exotic animals, birds are estimated to be in 5.7 million households with about 16.2 million animals. Reptiles are in a similar number, about 4.6 million households with 13 million um, animals in those households. And then small mammals, so that's going to be our rabbits and ferrets and guinea pigs, there's about 5 million households with them with about 16 million animals. So whether they're good pets or bad pets, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of them out there. It comes down to what do we do with all these animals? What's the best way to handle them? Um, the owning or companionship of these unusual, non-traditional pets, do they make good pets? Can you have a human-animal bond with these? And by human-animal bond is the term that you feel that you are a companion to each other, you take care of this animal, you're emotionally tied to it, that you feel that it, uh, it enhances your life and hopefully you can also enhance the animal's life. And in the book, the, re- the author repeatedly just doesn't, un- he just laments about the fact that I just don't understand how anyone could ever own a snake. Like how can you ever have any sort of bond to a snake? They're just, they're these cold creatures that are, they, they make horrible pets. And I see a couple heads shaking like, oh, yeah, I kind of agree with them. But I know many people that have pet snakes, and they really like them. Um, and people, if you think about why people have animals as companions, sometimes they'll have them because they like to interact with them. Dogs are a great example. People have dogs because you can play ball with them, you can go running with them, you can go hiking with them. But sometimes people have pets because they're attractive. I personally own uh, four Gouldian finches. These little tiny finches, 
and they're absolutely beautiful. They look like pastel rainbow birds. Little small ones, they are scared to death of me. So our human-animal bond is tenuous at best. You know, should I own those birds? Well, maybe not. Fortunately, I adopted them all from people, so I don't feel guilty about buying them. But should they be out in the wild in the bush of Australia? That's where they're native to. Well, they're bred a lot now. So I don't necessarily have them as a companion to myself, but I think they're pretty. And unfortunately, a lot of times people have animals for various reasons. And the classic reason we owned animals is because we ate them or they did work for us. And the way that our society is changing, they're companions, sometimes they're pretty. And I think the author, unfortunately, doesn't acknowledge all the reasons that people have these pets. Again, he just really focuses on the extreme cases. If you think about why people have oxen in the old days, they pulled things, and it helped you do work. And possibly owning these gerbils and hamsters made you a more responsible adult. And so that may be seen as maybe less of a pet and more of a working relationship, and that you took care of them, so that was good for them, because otherwise they might be fed to the snake, which happens sometimes. Um, but it also taught you responsibility. And so I think if, as he basically excludes any reasons other than simply companionship for these animals, he leaves out a big part of sometimes why we own animals. Um, a couple of just little brief stories of the companion animal relationship that people have with exotic animals. Um, one of my coworkers, I was kind of relaying this information about the book and was saying, well, you know, he's really, he's really down on people that own snakes. He thinks that people that own snakes are just silly. And she told me, well, you know, actually I had a corn snake that I lost and it was really pretty upsetting. I really like that snake. It enhanced my life. It was a really nice snake. And then cockatiels and birds are very long-lived. We had a cockatiel that recently, um, an owner that had a cockatiel that lived to over 20, which is very old, for a cockatiel. And this was her only companion. And she was very upset when she lost that bird. And there are some birds that they can live up to, you know, 60 to 80 years. That's longer than sometimes you're with a spouse. And if you go and look at things like tortoises, Tortoises can live to be hundreds of years old. Usually if you have a tortoise, you need to will them to someone that you either like or very much dislike, depending on how, <laughs> depending on how much work they are. So something to keep in mind also is that regardless of the bond, whether it's I like having these pretty birds in my family room or I like playing with the bunnies or whatever it happens to be, the fact of the matter is, is our world is changing. And if you look at... Um, as an example that I was having with one of my coworkers earlier today, if you look at very crowded cities, sometimes having a big dog really isn't a good idea. If you have to live in a really small apartment, is that fair to the dog? Is that a good idea? Well, maybe it's a better idea to have some gerbils, or maybe it's a better idea to have a snake, or something that's a little bit smaller and lower maintenance and makes less noise, because apartment living just doesn't usually go well with big barking dogs. And so as our society changes, that's something to keep into consideration, that especially in crowded areas, I believe Hong Kong, they have lots of small animals, be it um, you know gerbils and hamsters and rabbits, and most of their dogs are very small, just because there's not the space for all these giant dogs, and I'm guilty I have one. I've got a really big dog, but I live in East Tennessee, so it's okay.
Um, if, if we are saying that maybe it's not a good idea to have all these pets, how would you reverse that? How would you go back now that we've bred all of these animals and, and they're out there and there's all these processes? Well, and that um, actually goes nicely into kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about is, and as Sandra, our, our media person, always tells me to temper myself, um, as, as someone that works with wildlife routinely, so we have wildlife coming into the veterinary clinic, and a good portion of those are coming in because they've been damaged, killed, bitten by cats. And so, you know, what do we do with all of these excess animals? And I think that that's something that is a good question, and it's probably it's a very controversial question if we talk about feral cats itself, and I'm not going to get into that today because I'll get in trouble. <laughs> Um, but but this is this is something that he actually addresses in the book a little bit, um, particularly when he's talking about the Burmese pythons. And so the big issue is, is um, that people get these these animals and they say, oh, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to have this awesome big snake, and I'm going to be the coolest guy in the block until it gets to be 20 feet long. And they realize, oh, this was really a bad idea, and I can't afford to pay for it. Um, it's too big. I can't, you know, I don't have space for the enclosure. And so they start releasing them into the wild. And so this is actually a big issue in South Florida right now in the Everglades that there's these Burmese pythons running around. And he addresses this um, in the book about how they're going or um, they're basically catching them, killing them. And sometimes when they open them up, they find endangered species of predominantly mammals that these animals are eating. And at the same time, he briefly touches on the idea of feral cats and what role do they play in the environment. And he... Um, you know, he, he says something briefly, but in essentially the same sentence or paragraph, he goes, he goes on to say how he lets his own cat outside routinely, and it brings him dead wildlife. And so anything that he says about the Burmese pythons, you got to take a little bit of grain of salt because he doesn't really have a whole lot of credibility when he's doing something himself that's fairly destructive. Um, and he doesn't really seem to make the connection that his own cat is a problem going outside. Uh, there's a number of uh, interventions that are going on, particularly with cats. Um, one was uh, uh, in 1997, the American Bird Conservatory started a, a program that's called Birds, or sorry, Cats Indoors, and it's an education program, essentially encouraging people, uh, not only cat owners but veterinarians, to keep cats inside. And there's a number of reasons for that. Their primary reason is the protection of wildlife. But certainly cats can go outside. They can get in fights. They can catch infectious diseases from other animals outside. So they wanted to promote it not only as a protection for your own cat, but also for all the animals out there. And so they estimate that there's millions to billions of birds, small mammals, reptiles that are killed in the United States every year by outside cats. So that's really where they're coming from. Other programs actually, um, such as the a program that's run at the University of Tennessee, they get cats that are outside. These may be barn cats. They could be feral colonies that they have uh, a person that helps take care of them. And they bring them in for spaying and neutering. And programs like this, uh, I think they do have their positives. They also have their negatives. And in general, they're very controversial. Uh, there are There's kind of two sides of the camp. One is that they're doing a good thing by reducing populations, um, by stopping reproduction, and the other side of the camp says, well, you're still letting them out there to kill people. Or not kill people, sorry, kill wildlife. <laughs> Those are the big cats. And so this, it, it's definitely a controversial topic. And like I said, I'm not going to go any further than that today. But there are a lot of animals out there. And it's actually a huge issue um, 
not only with you know, these excess exotic animals, um, I'm not sure if you heard the recent uh, confiscation about, I think it was maybe three weeks ago, in Middle Tennessee that there was a woman that had about 160 parrots that all got confiscated. And so you say, oh, my God, that's got to be a loud house, and it's got to be messy. But if you think about it, you've got those 160 birds. What was it last year? There was just a, uh, the folks in South Knoxville that had about 60 dogs. Well, that's a lot of dogs. So there's all these excess animals, and it's not just exotic animals. And so it brings it into play, what do you do with all these animals? Young Williams euthanizes approximately 12,000 animals a year, which is a horrible statistic to think about. But it's a lot of animals. And it's, it goes back to education of letting people know, what, what are you getting into? Should you even be getting this pet? And please spay and neuter. Yes. Oh, I just had a question about the UT program. So after they spay or neuter the cats, do they just release them back? Um, so typically or? what happens, there's, there's various colonies, and it's not just Knox County. It's 14 okay, 14 counties across East Tennessee. And some of these colonies, like I said, they, um, most of them have some, t- some sort of caretaker. And so a person that kind of keeps track of who's there, um, what's going on, do new cats show up, do new kittens show up, and they trap them and bring them in to be spayed and neutered. They get vaccinated, um, and they tip their ears so you can tell from a distance that they've been altered. And then, yes, they get released back to where they came from. Um, the thought being that if you put them back in the environment, that void is not going to be filled by other cats. But, yes, they do get released back. Um, to answer this gentleman's question about, you know, what's what's a possible solution to all this, and, um, and you already mentioned it, education is a great solution to the problem. And I think if you sell a pet or an animal as a pet, then with that comes a responsibility to share how you take care of that animal and what its husbandry is and all that. And that's something that could be regulated and made mandatory. If a pet store sells an animal, they can be or could be required to uh, provide information on how to properly care for that animal. And and also give, you know, its history. How long is it going to live? You're going to buy a macaw, it lives 60 years, <laughs> etc. You when you're getting it. And, and you find this out when you get it, not after afterwards. Um, right. And you call us and go, um, I just bought a bird. What do I feed it? What do they do? That shouldn't ever happen. That is something that he actually addresses on here, that if you guys Google exotic pets, you will have a slew of websites that you can order just about anything from. And there's essentially no education, no follow-up, no responsibility of the people selling that. And you can buy stuff, and apparently I believe Missouri is one of the worst states when it comes to regulations. Tennessee is actually really pretty good when it comes to what's allowed and what's not. But unfortunately, a lot of people, before they buy these animals, they don't look and see, oh, you know what, this is actually illegal in my state. And there are some animals that are not allowed for various reasons in Tennessee. Um, One of the most common ones that uh, we have to deal with is it's called a Quaker parrot. And they're these little birds, little green birds, little parrots. And they're fairly innocuous, but they were put on the list of not being allowed in Tennessee because of the possibility of them establishing, you know, flocks that could live here. Is there a question in the back? Um, I was wondering what the impact on the animal is socially and emotionally if they are abandoned or given up like tigers and monkeys, chimps. um, Once they're released back into the wild, if they have problems, they don't? They don't release back in the wild. Oh, well, okay. That never happens? Well, so so as an example, um, 
and I'll use this as a local example that we deal with. So Tiger Haven is an animal sanctuary. It's a big cat sanctuary in Roan County. They have a little over 300 animals, I believe, right now. There's a, a large number of cats out there. About half of them are tigers. The rest is a mix of lions and servals and other miscellaneous cats. Um, all of those animals came from either circuses or someone's pet that decided it was a bad idea, um, roadside zoos, uh, things like that. There's, I know there's some that were from a gas station display. And so these animals, they're certainly, some of the animals you, you see and you're just like, wow, that's the things that they've done to them, with, which he touches a little bit briefly, but sometimes people that buy big pets, or sorry, big cats, one of the things that they come to us at UT for is to declaw them. So take their claws off and take their canines out so that they're a good pet. We don't do it, and it's actually against AVMA regulations. So the American Veterinary Medical Association says you, that that is unethical. And so, unfortunately, not everyone is ethical, and so they sometimes will get cats that have had declaws done, much like a domestic cat. But if you think about sometimes the, the pain with a domestic cat can be significant, and they only weigh about 8 pounds. So if you have a three to 400-pound animal on these sore feet, they can have some significant issues that we have to deal with. And so not only medical issues, but, you know, I think psychologically probably some of them, I would say certainly more with the primates, have more of an attachment to whoever their keeper was for years and years. But certainly the big cats, I mean, you can see how the keepers interact with big cats, be it at the zoo here at the Knoxville Zoo or at Tiger Haven. And you can tell that they, they know each other. And there's... You know, maybe they're not necessarily friends like you and your dog, but there certainly is a, an understanding between those animals. And so moving them to a sanctuary or wherever, wherever it happens to be certainly could be traumatic emotionally for them. Uh, I was a little surprised. I thought the, the book was going to be more about the international exotic pet trade, and you haven't really talked about that at all. No, and it's, it's, it, it's really hardly touches on it. Oh. It doesn't... Um, it's really more about pet ownership. Yeah, well, I, I just want to put in a plug for uh, if you're trying to get animals from overseas, first don't. Right. <laughs> and uh, most, uh, many that you would try to get from overseas, you cannot legally possess in the United States, particularly if they're protected by the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species or by the Endangered Species Act. And uh, although some limited trade is allowed in some of those things, generally you have to have a permit and a good reason for getting one, and most people don't have a good reason for getting one. Correct. Uh, but despite that, and there's a, an international legal regime for the protection uh, on inter of international trade and endangered species. The smuggling, the illicit trade in, in wildlife is second only to the illegal drug industry in terms of dollar volume, and it's a miserable trade. There's millions and millions of animals, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, that are smuggled in, in and out of the United States, mostly in, because we're big buyers more than sellers. And it leads to a lot of death and misery, because uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I think, says that uh, for every 10 birds that are smuggled in the United States, only one lives a month. I mean, they're, you, you import a bird, it's, it's going to be dead pretty quick, generally. So uh, my, my plug is to don't do that. And it's a good point. I actually expected him to address the trafficking more than he did. And he really, it was not addressed much at all other than things like Internet sites and where you can actually buy them. 
Um, and that's certainly something to keep in mind is another reason to really educate and know where these animals are coming from is a lot of animals are taken from the wild and imported legally or illegally. Uh, for the most part, if they're going to be coming to the pet trade, there's a good chance that it's going to be illegal um, simply because if permits need to be issued and you've got to have a good reason uh, to bring them in, usually that good reason is going to be they're going to be on display at a zoo for education purposes or a wildlife center, something like that. And once these animals are taken out of the wild, it depletes those natural populations. And so they're going to be more likely to go extinct. And if you think about how much um, travel ecotourism, I believe is the word, there's a lot of ecotourism, especially in third world countries, to go see native wildlife, especially if you think about Africa. People go there to go on safari. They want to see these animals in the wild. And as you start to deplete those stocks, that economy, it's not valuable. So let's just mow it over and start planting crops. And so there's just not going to even be the habitat for any remaining populations to even rebound. Okay. The last thing that I wanted to touch on that he mentioned very briefly in the book was when we have exotic pets, what are we dealing with when they come in with infections? So if these animals are imported legally or illegally, sometimes they're carrying diseases that we're not aware of. So in 2003, there was an outbreak of monkeypox. And this was mostly diagnosed in the Midwest, and it was associated with people that had prairie dogs as pets. And so they finally traced it back and realized that there had been an importation of rodents from Africa that were carrying this pox virus that, um, unfortunately, when it appears in humans, looks a lot like smallpox. And so those doctors that first saw this really freaked out and thought, oh, God, something bad is happening. There's been some sort of bioterrorism event. And so one of the questions is, is what kind of diseases are these animals bringing over? And if you read a lot of the human medical literature, the MDs, so doctors that would treat you guys, are very much against owning exotic pets. They think it's a bad idea, you're going to get some horrible disease, and you're going to die. And for the most part, I don't know if that's completely warranted. Um, It's kind of like a little chicken little saying that they like to say. But one of the things that reptiles are notorious for is salmonella. And so we do have a couple of education handouts that we give to reptile owners that emphasize good hygiene, prevention of salmonella infections, because certainly that's something that you can get. It's estimated that about 74,000 people in the United States get salmonella infections from exposure to either a reptile or an amphibian every year. And so that's a good number of people. It's far less than people that get salmonella from foodborne exposures. So be it eggs or spinach or whatever it happens to be that they get it from, that's a lot more common. But reptiles still constitute a reasonable amount. And that's what led to the ban and the sale of turtles years ago because there were so many children that were getting salmonellosis. And so is it a valid concern? And this is actually a question that I've been toying with because when you think about dogs and cats, they both carry a lot of diseases that we can get. So cats can carry toxoplasmosis, bartonellosis, a bunch of oses that I could just keep making up and you'd be like, whatever, that's fine. <laughs> so ringworm. And so there's a bunch of other things that dogs as well as cats can carry and give us pretty commonly. Not all of them are terribly bad, but you can still get disease from them. Um, I actually just recently have started running a survey of veterinarians in the United States and Canada. And it just started, I think, maybe about a month and a half ago. And so far, we've got about 350 responses. And what I'm asking them is, how frequently 
do you actually see infections in dogs and cats or infections in exotic animals that can be given to people? How often do you suspect it? How often do you actually diagnose it? Do you have education materials for your owners? What are you trying to educate them about? Because I think, unfortunately, the because every once in a while there, there are these little blips of monkeypox where I believe, I can't even remember how many people actually got it. It was not a huge amount. It was under 100 people. They all recovered. Nobody died. Um, it's certainly scary when you get it. But you see these things and they make the news and you forget about how many people actually are attacked by dogs every year. And that's something that he discusses. There are approximately 4.7 million people bitten by dogs in the United States every year. Some of those people die, probably about an equal amount. They usually think it's probably about the 20s, so 20 to 30 people. And so if you think about on a big scale, probably owning a dog or having dogs around is a lot more dangerous than owning a rabbit. And so this is something that I'm trying to explore in this, well, most rabbits, (laughs) <laughs> See, I used to own a rabbit that actually, if I did, when I opened the refrigerator door, if I didn't get the carrot out fast enough, she bit my ankle. <laughs> but that's unusual. But so this is something that I'm actually, that is near and dear to my heart, that I'm trying to figure out, you know, are these warnings that the, the medical doctors, the human medical doctors, is, are they warranted? Are we really diagnosing more bad things in these exotic animals than we are in dogs and cats? Are people really getting more disease from dogs and cats? which is what I think is probably more likely, because there's a lot more of them out there. And I'm not going to ask hands because I'm sure someone will get in trouble, but I'm sure there are people in here that don't have their dogs registered. And a perfect example is just, um, when was the the attack on the, the kid that was attacked by a dog recently? Yeah. So he was attacked. Uh, basically, he went over to the neighbor's house to deliver a mis- misdelivered package and the neighbor's dogs were out and attacked him, took off both of his ears. He, you know, potentially could have emotional damage for the rest of his life because of that, because of irresponsible pet ownership of those dogs, because they weren't confined. And so it really does come back to, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's right to have a pet at all. I have some, but that's natural for a veterinarian. If a, a veterinarian without a dog is like a, I don't know, a car without a tire. It just, it's not normal. Um, but I, I don't know if it's right to own them, but I think we have to acknowledge that people do own them, and education is really what it's going to come down to, to make sure people know what they're getting into and know how to deal with a situation when it goes bad. And there's a lot of reasons to not own animals at all, and these are some of them specific to exotic animals. And it goes back to the question of, you know, when you do have an exotic animal, one thing that you kind of run into that you probably don't quite as much with dogs and cats are, can you care for them correctly? Because a lot of them have very specific husbandry and dietary needs that sometimes we can't do a good job of. So maybe they're not good pets. Well, thanks for coming out today. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.